Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. So sometimes I'll come across phrases that people say, and they say, oh yeah, there's this phrase in the Bible, you must have heard it, it says X. And you think, huh, I didn't know that phrase was in the Bible. So I go away and I do what all good people do, I Google it, and I go, oh, that phrase actually isn't in the Bible, even though they said it was. And so I want to have a little quiz today and see how well you can do with some phrases that may or may not be in the Bible. Now we can make it really fun and have you all stand up and... Raise hands and see who the winner is, but I don't think we'll do that. You can keep your own personal score, okay? So I've got six phrases, six phrases. See how many you get out of six, right or wrong. Are these phrases in or out of the Bible? All right, number one, moderation in all things. Moderation in all things, in or out of the Bible. Think for a moment. Make up your mind, in or out that one is, in fact, out. That is not in Scripture. This idea, or the idea behind the phrase, comes from a book by Aristotle and his ethics. And the direct quote comes from Rome several hundred years before Christ. Okay, hopefully you're one for one right now. Let's see how you do on the second one. Second one, a fool and his money are soon parted. A fool and his money are soon parted, in or out. Hmm. A tricky one. That one is, in fact, out. Sounds a lot like a proverb, doesn't it? Uh, you might find that in the book of Proverbs, but it's actually not even close to a biblical reference. This comes from Thomas Tusser, who wrote it in 1573, in 500th points of good husbandry. <laughs> I wish I could give all the husbands in here a copy of that book, but that sounds fantastic. Did you know there are 500 points of good husbandry? All right. <clears throat> Third one, let's see how you're doing. Uh, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk only leads to poverty. Hmm. What do you think, in or out? Okay, this one is in. Whew, yes. Whew, good guess, well done. This is found in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23. All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. All right, fourth one. Charity begins at home, in or out. Charity begins at home. Charity, in or out. That one is out, okay? Generally, it's credited to Terence, the Roman comic writer. It is sometimes also attributed to Sir Thomas Brown, who wrote the phrase 1642. And it's amazing how often that gets quoted as biblical, and yet, actually, it's really anti the gospel. <laughs> if you stop and think about it, no. The gospel is about welcoming the stranger and the immigrant. Okay, fifth one. God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves, in or out. That one is out. And hopefully you know that. I often talk about that in my sermons, that that phrase is completely wrong. Because the, the message of Scripture is that God helps those who cannot help themselves, right? Because we are all in desperate trouble without God. We desperately need His grace and His mercy. God helps those who cannot help 
themselves. And that phrase, if you're wondering, comes from Algernon Sidney, who wrote it in an article titled Discourses Concerning Government, and it was then popularized by Benjamin Franklin, no less, in 1757. All right, last one. Money is the root of all evil. Money is the root of all evil, in or out. Money is the root of all evil. That one is out. That may surprise some of you. The reason being, you might think, well, that's, isn't that in 1 Timothy chapter 6? Well, actually, that passage says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You see, it's the love of money that's the problem, not the money itself. Hey, that's a big difference if you think about it. The semantics are really important, as we'll discover in our sermon today. Did anyone get six out of six? Come on. Six out of six, anyone? Anyone willing to admit to it? Wow. Okay. That's good. They were tough ones. Well, good. I clearly I made it tough enough. I don't think I would have got six out of six. So that's uh, uh, interesting, isn't it, to see what is in and what is out of Scripture, but particularly in relation to money, because they really all relate to money and finances. And as we come into land in our last week, Yes, it is our last week talking about money and finances. Um, what we're seeing is in our series, A Transformed Life, is that a transformed life is one that sets its hope in God, even in the area of its finances. In fact, especially in the area of its finances. Remember, there are over 2,300 verses in Scripture that talk about money and possessions. And that's more than double the amount of prayer and faith combined. Clearly, God cares about money and how we use it. And so he talks a lot about it in his scriptures. And he calls us to surrender every part of our lives, including our finances, remembering that everything we have is his, and we can't take it with us, right? No one's ever taken a penny to heaven, okay? None of it goes with us. Well, today we'll see that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. In this case, in our story today, uh, the evil is wickedness and laziness. And if we don't know who God really is, we will be susceptible to this. But money and making money aren't bad things in themselves. Okay? So let's turn to our gospel reading for today. And uh, you can find it on the screen right there. Or you can follow along on the scripture sheet. Or open up um, your Bible app if you want to follow along. And if you were to have the whole um, few chapters that this passage falls within in front of you, you would see there's a long discourse. You know how you have these red letter Bibles? Mine's a red letter Bible. You might be able to see it, but look how much red text there is. Jesus is teaching a bunch right there. And he's teaching mostly through parables. And he's teaching about the end of time and his second coming and the judgment that will come when he returns. And in the midst of this, we find our parable for today. And what's a parable? Well, if you were here last week, you might remember that it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So it has a story that you could follow and go, well, that's interesting. But if you're really listening, you'll understand there's a heavenly meaning behind it as well. It's a bit like an Aesop fable, the hare and the tortoise. There's a story that's interesting, but there's also a point behind the story. Same with our parable. And when you have a parable, one of the things you have to do is figure out who the characters are in the story and, or anything else that's in the story that actually means something. And so in our story today, we've got a few different things we have to figure out. First of all, who is the master? Okay, and then secondly, who are the servants? And then thirdly, what does talents mean? What does that mean? So the first thing is, who is the master? And it becomes clear throughout the story that the master is Jesus, right? He's the one who's giving stuff to people and leaving them and then returning. The servants 
would be his people. In this case, the people he's talking to are the Jews. So he's talking to the Jews in particular. So it would be Jesus and the Jews. And now today we would say, okay, but the, Jew, the Jews are now represented by the church. So now it's Jesus and his church. That would be you and me, okay? What about the talents? Well, the talents actually represent money. Now we might think, well, we talk about talents, we think about gifts. And sometimes you'll hear people say that. Well, really, this passage is about gifts. But I would tend to go with what Kent Hughes says when he says this. The talents symbolize more than money, but not less than money. Listen, just because Jesus is not teaching economic theory here, don't think he isn't teaching some economic truths. Money matters matter to Jesus. And it is the master's money, quite plainly, we are dealing with here. While we need not limit the application of this parable to money matters, let's not be so quick to expand talents to mean everything except the use of money, which is the temptation, right? Because we get awkward talking about money, right? It's like, oh, I feel uncomfortable. It must be about gifts, not talents. This is a story about how God's people use God's wealth. You hear that? It's a story about how God's people use God's wealth. So, having said that, let's move into our passage. And the first thing we see is that God gives abundantly. How do I know that? Well, look at the text. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't, what does that mean God gives abundantly? How do you see that? Well, it's because I know that a talent is worth 15 years' wages for a day laborer. Think about that for a minute. The smallest amount he gives is 15 years of wages. And at today's probably uh, rates and so on, it's probably worth about 500000 to a million dollars. That's how much he leaves with the one who gets the least. Now think about the guy who gets the most. He's getting 2.5 to $5 million entrusted to him to take care of and to use as well. You see, God gives abundantly, and we have to get out of this mindset about God that he is a stingy giver. No, God gives abundantly. And once we start to realize that, it changes how we view him. And we could also say that God trusts abundantly, right? I don't know how many of you have given 500000 to a million dollars to anyone. Probably not many of you, right? <laughs> I see Chris's eyes like, what? <laughs> but when you give someone that amount of money, you're showing a lot of trust, right? When you say, Please take care of this. And so he clearly trusts his people a lot. The word stewardship, which you often hear in a church around about this time of year when they talk about stewardship campaigns, means entrusted. It's one who has been entrusted, all right? You see, God's followers are stewards of God's resources, entrusted to take care of them and to use them well. And as God gives generously, so should we, which is a point that the third person in our story doesn't realize, doesn't realize that. So God gives abundantly. Second thing we see is that God expects us to use his abundance for his kingdom's sake. We see this in the example of the first two servants and the master's response to how they act. Look at verse uh, 16. He who had received the five talents went at once, traded with them, and he made five talents more. So he doubles what he's been given. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, again, doubling. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forwards, uh, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents or 
$5 million more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. When it comes to being good and faithful in God's economy, uh, which could be financial or otherwise, uh, what it means is to use what we're given by God to grow his kingdom. To grow his kingdom. God has given us all kinds of things. The primary one we're talking about today is money and finances and possessions, okay? But he's also given us time and gifts and talents and so on, all right? And so he calls us to use those and to actually share them and to be generous with those things, not to hoard them. And there are rewards when we live this way. We see this in the passage, don't we? When he comes back, the first reward that the first two servants receive is they are praised by him. Well done. Who doesn't love to be praised by their boss, right? Who doesn't love it when your boss showers praise on you? You have done a great job. It reminds me of how often I hear interviews about people who say they've been driven all their life by just wishing that their dad would say, well done. And even beyond the grave, dads can have that power, right? People love to be praised by their fathers. They love to be praised by their bosses as well. It's a good thing that's happening here. Secondly, another good thing happens. It may not seem like it, but more responsibility is given to them. Notice that? Because the first one doesn't do what he's supposed to do, the other ones get what he had. And they are given more responsibility, okay? And that's a good thing in God's economy. As people, when we're given more responsibility, that means that we are doing well in God's eyes. And the third and the greatest thing is that someday we will enter into the joy of our Lord and Savior. Remember how we've talked about um, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? One of the ways God sees that we are following him is when we trust him with our money. That is a fruit that uh, we bear in keeping with repentance. And so when judgment day happens, that will be one of the things he'll look at. It will be, have you truly loved me with all that I have given you? And when he says, well done, good and faithful servant, he'll say, come and enter into my joy. Now, the thing I want to notice right here as well is that making money isn't a bad thing. In fact, making lots and lots of money is not a bad thing. Remember, money is not the root of all evil. Okay, that's, that's, a, mis- no, that's a, a misunderstanding about, uh, about money. Making lots and lots of money is a gift that some of you probably have. Okay, some of you might be really gifted at that. And that's a good thing. God doesn't have a problem with that. Even he says that banks aren't bad. Notice that as well, right? And for banks to have interest rates and things like that, not a bad thing either, right? Sometimes we can be down on both of those things, people who make lots of money and banks. He's not saying those things are bad. No, far from it. No, Jesus doesn't have a problem with making money. It's who we're making it for. Are we making it for our own glory or are we making it for his glory, right? So remember that. Third thing. God judges our faithfulness according to how we use abundance. We see that his abundance. We see this in the last part of the story. The third servant doesn't get the same response, does he? Did you notice that? He takes that talent. He buries it. He says, um, he says where is it? Uh, I was afraid and I went and hid the talent. Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And his master responds, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. I think there's a hint of sarcasm there. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. So take the talent from him. Give it to the other one who had 10 and cast him out into outer darkness. 
he doesn't get the same response, does he? And it's, it might seem like a harsh response. But think about it. We probably have some business owners in here. If you entrust something to someone, and you say, all right, now I'm going on vacation for two weeks. When I come back, I would like you to have done this thing. And you come back in two weeks' time and they said, you know what? I know you're a tough boss, so I decided not to do that thing in case I did the wrong thing. Are you going to just go to them and say, oh, well, well done. That was really smart. I'm really proud of you for doing that. I don't think so. <laughs> I think we would all have the same response. You wicked and lazy servants, right? Or employee. Why did you do that? Look how the business is being run into the ground now. Nothing has grown. In fact, we're going backwards. We too would have the same response. Now, why does he have that response, the servant? Why does he not try to do anything? Well, it's because he doesn't know the master. Despite this extraordinary generosity that he has, this abundance he gives, no, he mischaracterizes him as a hard man who reaps where he does not sow and gathers where he scatters no seed. And the master's incredulous. He's probably thinking, how long have you been in my service? And yet you still don't know me. You still don't know me. And the reason I think he's been in service for a long time is because Jesus is teaching the Jewish people. And for 2,000 years, they have walked around with him. He has taken them from one disaster, rescuing them again and again and again. He's given them their own homeland, a promised land to live in, a land flowing with milk and honey. And still, they don't get it. They're still living as if he's a harsh master who reaps where he does not sow. They don't understand you can sense his frustration. And you know, the same could be said of the church today, if we're honest. If the story represents Jesus and the Jews, and therefore Jesus and his church today, there are areas in which the church still doesn't understand who God is. We still treat him like he's way off there sometimes. And yet he wants to be very close and intimate with us, his people. He wants to live in us and among us. That's how much he loves us and cares for us. He's not a harsh master. He's a good father, as we often sing about in our worship music. And the reason is the same as his listeners then, Jesus listens. We don't understand the love and grace that God shows to us. I quoted this a couple of weeks ago. I'll, I've quoted it before. I'm going to quote it again because it's so true. Tim Keller says this, to the degree that you grasp the gospel, Jesus living, dying on the cross, rising again to pay for our sins, sins we could not pay for because we cannot help ourselves. Money will have no dominion over you. To the degree that you grasp the gospel, money will have no dominion in you. If you grasp it a little bit, money's going to have a lot of dominion over you because you're going to seek to trust in money. If you grasp it a lot, money will have very little power over you because you're trusting God. Therefore, think on his costly grace until it changes you into a generous people. The solution to stinginess is a reorientation to the generosity of Christ in the gospel, how he poured out his wealth for you. Now you don't have to worry about money. The cross proves God's care for you and gives you security. Well, friends, as J.C. Ryle put it, the parable of the talents is a call to the church to work and to work hard with what God has given us. Not because we're trying to earn our salvation, that's been given, but because we love him and we respond in gratitude for what he's done. We are to be generous with our money, primarily, and we see that in today's reading, with our possessions, with our time, with our gifts. So how are you using what God's given you? And who or what do you use it primarily for? Do you use it for God's kingdom or do you use it for your own? You see, the message throughout Scripture is consistent. 
being a follower of Jesus means understanding that our wealth is not our own. We are to use it generously and regularly for God's kingdom's sake. And as I've said before, for Melissa and I, this means we give the first 10% of all we earn to the Lord. It just goes to the Lord each month. We trust him with that as a love response, knowing that that will reap a harvest in itself as we do that. But then we also give on top of that to others as they have need as well. And so we seek to be generous in our giving. Remember this spiritual test that Kent Hughes gave. Um, I, I read this a few weeks ago. The t- um, do we want to have an accurate evaluation of the state of our spirituality? Here are some biblical tests. Are we generous with our possessions? Do we share our homes, our cars, our clothing, our food with others joyfully? Or are we loath to share? Do we always push for more and then grasp it tightly? Do we enjoy giving to family, friends, and more significantly to those in need? Do we give regularly and sacrificially to the Lord? If you are a Christian, but do not give regularly to the Lord, if you are tight, if you find it difficult to God, you, to give to God, you are in spiritual trouble, and possibly you are not even a Christian at all. Now, for some of us, hearing a message like this will mean that we might need to sell a home that we can't afford in an area that we can no longer afford to live in. It might mean that for some of us because we can't give to the Lord generously. That's how serious this gets. Or maybe we have a second home that we shouldn't have and we need to sell it so we can give more generously. Okay? Or it might mean that we can't take that expensive vacation anymore because when we do that, we're stealing from the Lord. Or it might mean that um, we can't put our child in a private school even though we would love to do that. Or maybe we have to cancel that club membership that we have. Or maybe we have to settle for an older car or keep a new car longer than we would otherwise otherwise would have liked to. Maybe we have to sell that golf cart that we just don't really need. Or maybe we can't make those home improvements that we'd love to do, but they just aren't necessary. There are actually repercussions for believing this stuff and for living it out, right? It hurts, but it's so good. Because then we become free of the idol of money again. And we are able to see God at work in our lives. Able to see him and we grow in our faith rather than stunting in our faith and wondering why we struggle to trust God. Because we're not trusting him in the most important area for most of us in our lives, which is with our very finances. Friends, are you trusting God with your wealth? You know, the rewards are great for doing so. You may not even see them in this life. You will experience blessing, trust me. Maybe not financial, but certainly blessing. But in the next life, they will be many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to trust you, particularly in this area of wealth, an an area that our culture, the culture we find ourselves living in, struggles with so much. We have made money an idol, wealth an idol. And what we've missed out is that you are the only one worshiping, worth worshiping, Lord Jesus. So would you help us to live lightly with what you give to us as stewards and not as owners, Lord Jesus, but as people who are using what you've given to grow your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.